So as I, I said, we've been uh, working our way through these uh, seven churches. And of course, the the nice uh, map there that we uh, that we have of the looking at everything and going around. It was starting with Ephesus and Smyrna, and then went up to uh, Pergamon, Thyatira, Sardis, and uh, can anybody guess what the city is tonight? Philadelphia. And so as we look at these different cities, uh, we're looking at the Number one, of course, Ephesus is uh, the city. And does anybody remember the, the issue that was happening uh, there in Ephesus that Jesus is writing to? Love. They are doing all the right things, but they forget the reason why they're doing them. And again, I, uh, I don't have these in any of your handouts. Uh, just kind of uh, more review. Uh, but the, they forget that the reason why, and that is their love for God. Again, it's the same thing that we are, we need to make sure that we're standing upon the truth of God's word, that we're making sure that we're we're being uh, testing everything. And the reason why we're supposed to do that as believers in Jesus Christ is because we love God and we want to follow Him. And so that was what Jesus then goes on and says that they need to repent, and they need to do what they did at first when they first understood the gospel of Jesus Christ. They first understood that. That they repented of of their their ways of turning from their uh, sin and returning back to following Jesus with all their heart. Next city is Smyrna. So in Smyrna, is there is it a good thing or a bad thing that Jesus uh, talks about the church there in Smyrna? Persecution, but the church itself were they good or or something wrong with them? They were okay. There's only two churches where that's that's the case, uh, and we'll get to the second one tonight. Uh, but Smyrna is they're facing persecution. This is historical context when John is writing this. Of course, he is facing persecution. He is on the island of Patmos and and being exiled. and he, And he talks about how the Smyrna believers in Smyrna, you're gonna face persecution, and but there's gonna be even greater persecution for ten days or for a short time. That 10 days is not literal. That means it's more figurative just for a short time. And Jesus tells them to do what? To be faithful. To continue to hang on to the Gospel of Jesus Christ in the midst of this persecution. We get to Pergamum. Does anybody remember what the issue was in Pergamum? Balaam. The donkey. Yes, Balaam the donkey. <clears throat> what was happening in Pergamum was they were letting their culture influence the believers. The believers were becoming like their culture, just as Balaam uh, influenced the nation of Israel, used um, the king there to, to cause the nation of Israel to, to wander into sin. The, Jesus says, you're just like that. You're allowing your culture, because I mean, the synagogue of Satan is there in, in Pergamum, these, all these idols and so forth. You're allowing your culture to influence you. And so Jesus tells them to repent. To admit that and turn from that and begin to follow the gospel of Jesus again. Thyatira, the next city. And anybody remember who? Jezebel. And Jezebel, this time, was you have false teachers in the church that are causing believers to go away. And that's again what Jezebel is doing with the nation of Israel. They Jezebel is there with King Ahab, and he is, is influencing King Ahab to the point where he is leading the nation away from and doing some of the most wicked things in the world, and was Jezebel's influence. 
according to the passages that we saw. And so these have these false teachers, particularly a woman who was there in the Thyatira, who was teaching and who was leading the church away from the gospel of Jesus Christ. And Jesus says there's going to come judgment, and the judgment being sickness and death to these followers, and there's judgment is going to come for those who follow that. The last uh, city that we looked at was Sardis. Does anybody remember what was happening in Sardis from last week? They were dead. They have a good reputation. They have a good reputation, but spiritually they had fallen asleep. They were dead. I was thinking about that this uh, past past week and some of the discussions that we were we had. And, and again, in, in Sardis, you had this this understanding of the town of Sardis was uh, we have this giant wall where the city was positioned. They were in. They thought that we were impossible to be conquered. And so when you had this, this army coming and they thought, oh, they can't conquer us. It's impossible to do this. And so they didn't really defend themselves. And again, sometimes the historians would say, you know, the, the people on top of the walls fell asleep and that's how they got in and so forth. Spiritually, we have an enemy of our soul, right? And that's whom? Satan. And that's really what this, uh, as we were, some of the discussion we were having and some of the things that I was thinking about over the week, is really what's happening here is Jesus is saying, listen, spiritually you're falling asleep. Spiritually you're dead. Spiritually you're not being awake and, and, and watching out for those when Satan is coming and, and, and attacking you. And that's why he says, wake up! Pay attention! And so, because he doesn't want the believers there in Sardis to come to the same reality as if you want to say the actual city of Sardis, that they were sleeping on the job and allowed the enemy come in, not just once, but twice they were conquered. This city that they thought was impossible to conquer, they got conquered twice. And Jesus is saying, pay attention. Don't fall asleep and get lackadaisical in your relationship with God or you will face that same consequences. Wake up. So as we are looking at all this, you know, this is that circular road that you start there in Ephesus and you kind of go around. And, and today, our next city on our stop is that city of uh, Philadelphia. And does, anybody remember, does anybody know what Philadelphia means? Brotherly love. The city of brotherly love. So let me read for us uh, Revelation chapter 3. If you have your Bibles uh, open there, we're going to look at Revelation chapter 3, verses 7 through 13. And then we'll jump in to uh, discussing this. One of the things, before I read it, one of the things that we have to keep in mind is, of course, the Apostle John is writing this, uh, and he is a Jewish person, and he uses a lot of Jewish symbolism in the book of Revelation. And we'll see that as we go through the entire book of Revelation. The Jewish symbolism. And this letter here into Philadelphia has tons of Jewish symbolism. And we're going to jump into some of that tonight. Uh, but as we read through, um, this understand that the, this is symbolic and it, a lot of it points back to the Old Testament. So, Revelation chapter 3, 
uh, verse 7. It says this, To the angel or to the messenger of the church in Philadelphia write, These are the words of Him who is holy and true, who holds the key of David. What He opens, no one can shut. And what He shuts, no one can open. I know your deeds. See, I have placed before you an open door which no one can shut. I know that you have little strength, yet you uh, keep my word and have not denied my name. I will make those who are of the synagogue of Satan who claims to be who claim to be Jews, uh, though they are not, but are liars, I will make them come and fall down at your feet and acknowledge that I love you. Since you have kept my word to endure patiently, I will also keep you from the hour of trial or testing that is going to come on the entire world to test the inhabitants of the earth. I am coming soon. Hold on to what you have so that no one will take your crown. The one who is victorious, or again that phrase victorious, overcomer, the one who prevails to the end, I will make a pillar in the temple of my God and never again will they leave it. I will write so I will also write on them the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which is coming down out of heaven from my God. And I will also write on them my new name. Whoever has ears, hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And so there's a lot of symbolism there uh, that we'll dive into. And, it, and you have to understand the symbolism to understand the message of what Jesus is saying to this church here in Philadelphia. But as we have been going through this uh, outline, we'll use this outline as we go through uh, these uh, this letter here uh, again. As we have the greeting, and, and the first verse there is the greeting to the angel, to the messenger of the church in Philadelphia. Now, to us in America, when we think of the word Philadelphia, we probably think of this city. This is not the right city of Philadelphia. This is the city of ancient Philadelphia. It is in modern-day Turkey. And the interesting thing about the, where the ancient city of Philadelphia is, if you go to that area, it is actually part of a modern day city and if you ever want to pronounce that name uh, good try uh, there um, but that is I would say Alshir Turkey uh, that's maybe how I would have pronounced it but who knows if that's correct or not so but uh, it is a part of the city and they just have ruins kind of all over and the reason for that is because where this Philadelphia is located in the modern day Turkey is a place where they experience earthquakes like crazy. In around 17 AD, there was this massive earthquake in this, in this area that affected not just Philadelphia, the city of Philadelphia, but also the city of uh, uh, Sardis and, and, and other of these cities that we have, to the point where Philadelphia was kind of like the epi, epicenter where what happened, and for about five years, uh, the Roman emperor stopped taxing them so that they could recover from this complete loss of the earthquake. And so what happens is the reason why there's not too many ruins left of like ancient cities except for some of these is because they've experienced so much earthquakes over the time that the city is just kind of in rebels uh, from the first century. 
which kind of plays into some of the uh, scenes here when we get to the symbolism. The other interesting thing that happens in the ancient city of Philadelphia is that because of, again, we're situated at the base of the mountain there, is the soil is very fertile, particularly for, uh, for grapes. And they would, in the first century, when they had grape vineyards, what would they make all, a lot of it? Wine. This was, that was what they produced a lot of to the point where, uh, again, when you look at the first century history of Philadelphia, the East City kind of had their own, like you want to say, God that they would, uh, city God that they worship. And here in Philadelphia, the God that they thought was like the God of the city was was the God of wine because of all the vineyards that they had. And again, this will all play into the symbolism and the message that Jesus uh, shares here in the verses here with uh, Philadelphia. But that's kind of the historical context of the city of Philadelphia. I mean, really, it's kind of like, if you want to say California, that they're, they're just waiting for the big one to happen all the time. When they're, when they're building, when they're building uh, land and they're building buildings, they're always thinking about when we got to build these buildings because of earthquakes and, and so forth. The other thing that happens in Philadelphia is at one point in time, because of the, the earthquakes that they experienced, and the rulers of the city de determined that it was unsafe for people to go back into their towns for, for about six months or so. They had all the people that lived in Philadelphia actually lived outside of Philadelphia because in temporary housing. Because again, because of the earthquakes and the unsettledness of that area. So all that to say, again, that's kind of, so as we've seen throughout each one of these churches, the historical context or the makeup of the city plays into the message. And that's what was happening here in the city of Philadelphia. So then we get to the second one, which is the title. So after Jesus uh, says, or to the messenger, the greeting to the messenger or angel of the church in Philadelphia, right? What are the titles that we see of Jesus in, the, in that verse? That he's holy, that he's true, holds the keys of David, open and shuts doors. Now we have always seen the, these titles from the vision in chapter 1. If you go back to chapter 1, do we, do we remember any of those things in the vision of chapter 1? And the answer is no. There is no, in this letter to the, uh, Philadelphia, there is no title of Jesus from chapter 1 vision. Now, you did mention all the titles of Jesus that were there. But this is the only letter that breaks the mold in this one where the rest of them is all, they see Jesus in this vision that he's, he's, he's has uh, the seven lampstands and they, and they see all these uh, things about uh, Jesus. And it's not so that they can make a picture of this is what Jesus looks like, but they're symbolic of what Jesus is, is his power and authority. These titles all refer back to the Old Testament. First couple you got right away that they are that Jesus is holy and that he is true. Holy, does anybody know what the word holy means? To be set apart. Why is it important that we understand that God 
Jesus is holy. Nobody else like Him. He is totally set apart. He is worthy of, of worship because He is unlike anybody else. Which is, when, when you think about when you think about especially the Old Testament, you think about the paganism that happens. And you think even in the New Testament, when, when, when Paul talks about, I know that the pagan people in Romans chapter 1, they exchange the glory of God for, for, for idols and that they form and craft them in their hand and they're bowing down to these, these works that they've made and so forth. And, and, but God is not like that. God is so much other. God is greater than us, which is why He's worthy of our worship. Other thing is that He is true. That Jesus is true. Meaning that He speaks the truth. And then we get to this uh, exciting phrase. He holds the key of David. In fact, this is actually is a quote from Isaiah 22. And we'll flip there here in a few minutes. But it's who holds, and referring to Jesus, who holds the key of David. What He opens, no one can shut. And what He shuts, no one can can open. Turn with me to Isaiah and we'll see Isaiah chapter 22 and we'll see what in this verse actually is referring to. It actually begins uh, this a larger section here in Isaiah 22 kind of begins in verse 15 through the end of the chapter and it's and it says this, this is what the Lord the Lord Almighty says and there's uh you kind of can see there's uh, several different uh, names there. This is what the Lord, meaning the Master Lord, the Lord, and you see is capitalized. Anybody know why it's all capitalized in, in the English Bibles? Yahweh. So, so it's, I mean, this is what the Lord, the word, Hebrew word for Master, the Lord Yahweh Almighty says, and then this is what He says, Go. Say to this steward, to Shebnam, the palace administrator, what are you doing here and who gave you permission to cut out a grave for yourself here? Hoon your grave on the height and chisel your resting place in the rock. And this is kind of Hebrew poetry where the first line will say one thing, the second line will say the almost the same thing but a little bit different and so that's kind of why sometimes it seems like it repeats itself is because it's Hebrew poetry. Verse 17, Beware, the Lord is about to take firm hold of you and hurl you away, you mighty man. He will roll you up tightly like a ball and throw you into a large country. There you will die, and there the chariots you were so proud of will become a disgrace to your master's house. I will dispose you from your office and you will be out ousted from your position. So, First part of this, the Lord says, this guy, Shebna, and who is Shebna according to verse 15? Treasurer, palace administrator, uh, secretary of state if you want to say. And so then God says, what's going to happen to this guy? What is God going to do to him? He's going to pretty much kill him. He wants to be buried with, with fame and dignity and God's like, no, you're not. No. You're not going to be honored. And then you get to verse 20. In that day, I will summon my servant uh, Elikim, son of Hilkiah, 
I will clothe him, clothe him with your robe and fasten your shafts around him and hand your authority over to him. He will be a father to those who live in Jerusalem and to the people of Judah. And so basically what God is saying here is, is Shebna, I'm going to wipe, get rid of you, but I'm going to replace you with this guy. Uh, we'll call him the E-name e guy. And he's going to take your position. And then we get verse 22. I will place on his shoulder the key to the house of David. What he opens, no one can shut. And what he shuts, no one can open. I will drive him like a pit peg into a firm place. He will become a seat of honor for the house of his father. All the glory of his family will, be, will hang on him as offspring and offshoots all his lesser vessels from the bowls to all the jars. In that day, declares the Lord Almighty, the peg driven into the firm place will give way. It'll be, it will be sheared off and will fall and the load hanging on it will be cut down. The Lord has spoken. So, so what God is saying here is there's going to be this transfer of power. This, this Shebna guy is going to die. I'm going to put in, in place of him this Elakim guy who is my servant. And I'm going to give him the key. When we talk about keys uh, in the past of in Revelation 1 and 2, what does that mean? I'm going to give someone the key. I'm going to give someone what? Authority. So I'm going to give him the key or the authority to the house of David. In other words, he is going to be in charge of David's house. He's going to be... And of course, David isn't around at this time. He's referring to, of course, the the kings and the um, and the uh, being able to go into the king's presence at any time, being able to have that uh, authority. What he opens, no one can shut. What he shuts, no one can open. He's going to have that final say. And so that's where, again, you have this verse then talking about Jesus back in Revelation. So when, when Jesus says back in Revelation that Jesus is the one who holds the key of, key of David, what he opens, no one can shut. What he shuts, no one can open. What When you understand the Old Testament background of that verse, what, how does that apply now to Jesus here in, in Revelation chapter 3? That he has authority. It's not so much what happens in the Old Testament is it isn't so much like, okay, you have these two guys and, and that he... Elakim is like a is like like Jesus isn't Elakim in the Old Testament. That makes does that make sense? But that verse, that understanding of that authority that that God says He's going to give authority to Elakim to, to have that power. But the meaning of what's happening in Isaiah applies to Jesus. So the meaning applies to Jesus here. So it's the the understanding of authority. And we'll see here, and again, you keep going here in Revelation. So God's going to give Jesus that authority, particularly Isaiah. God's going to give him authority over David's household or David's kingdom. Here, Revelation is Jesus has control over God's kingdom. And we'll see that here in a few moments. The kingdom of God as he talks about. Um, that Matthew, Mark, uh, Kingdom Matthew talks about the kingdom of heaven. Um, Mark, Luke uh, talks about this kingdom of God. 
this eternal kingdom that comes is going to come in. Jesus is the one that has the keys or the authority of that kingdom. And so it's, 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 it's the symbolism, not so much uh, like is what uh, we're, we're dealing with here in Revelation, is the symbolic nature of what was happening there in Isaiah. So those are, so again, the title of Jesus isn't so much from chapter uh, 1 vision, but it goes back to the Old Testament. Now, we get to the third section, which is the I know section. And what does, what happens when Jesus uh, talks about the I knows? What does Jesus say? I know what? Your deeds. And what deeds are they that Jesus knows? They have little strength. They kept his word. They have not denied his name. Those are kind of the three that are right there in verse 9. But there is a, a parenthesis, if you want to say something in there. I know your deeds. And then Jesus says, See, I have placed before you an open door, which no one can shut. In this vision, these terms of Jesus, that he has the keys, referring to the authority of the kingdom of God, that whatever he shuts, he's going to shut. No one can open. Whatever he opens, no one can shut. He has that authority. So the first one is they have little strength. What, is that, what does that mean, to have little strength? Again, thing is symbolic. They are few in numbers. They have little strength. And in fact, historically, and again, if you look at the entire, all these seven churches, uh, the church in Philadelphia, in a sense, was, was one of the smallest out of these seven churches, the insignificant church. The city was important to some degree, because it was the gateway to like the east, and you just kind of went through Philadelphia, and you kept on going all the way to the eastern part, all the way over to Rush, modern-day Russia, and so forth. But there are few in numbers. There are not many believers there in Philadelphia. But, yeah, Philadelphia, you go back to uh, our map there. So we have this like circular trade route, that Ephesus, that kind of does a loop. Uh, but there in Philadelphia, uh, you kind of come down to like a crossroads and you can either keep on going to Antioch and then you could just keep on going all the way to like modern, like the Black Sea area, modern day Russia and so forth like that, which is militarily that was the way they would go. Or you can um, loop back, back around. Uh, but it was one of those cities that there was this constant foot traffic through, uh, militarily in trade, uh, because it was kind of that door to the, to the, to the east. So. The other thing I know, and we saw that uh, they, they, kept, uh, they keep his, Jesus' word, and understanding and keep means that they obey. So yes, they are few in number, but they walk in obedience to God's word. You see that in verse 8. I know your deeds... I know that you have little strength or few in numbers, yet you have kept or you keep or you obey my word, and you have not denied my name. Meaning, and again, all this whole area is under this in persecution because of Domitian is the ruler of the Roman Empire, and he is persecuting uh, believers all over the Roman Empire right now. And they have been faithful. They have been faithful to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Even though they are few in number, they have remained faithful to the gospel 
of Jesus Christ. Even though in verse 9, Jesus goes on and says, who, who lives in your town again? You have a synagogue of Satan. And very similar language to the church in Smyrna. The church in Smyrna, again, they, they had tons of religious paganism and, and things around. And, and Jesus, Smyrna and Philadelphia are the only two um, churches that, that there's never any criticism about. They've been faithful. Smyrna, you've been faithful. You've been faithful in the midst of persecution. You're going to experience intense persecution for a few months, uh, for, for a little while now. Continue to remain faithful. Philadelphia, you're small in number, but you've been faithful. You have not given in. And so that's what, when we look at our outline again, you see the criticism of the church and the warnings. Uh, and is there is no criticism of the church in Philadelphia. There is no, if you want to say, warnings. What happens in this letter is God gives them these promises of this is what's going to happen. Because of you been faithful, because you have been uh, walking in obedience to me, here are some things that I'm going to do for you. Verse 9, I will make those who are the synagogue of Satan, who claim to be Jews, though they are not, but are liars, I will make them do what? I will come and, again, depending on your English translation, either I'll come and worship you, but uh, it probably is more I will come and bow down, which is understanding of worship. I'll bow down, I'll fall at your feet. At your feet. And again, we talk about this Last time with Smyrna, the synagogue of, of Satan, there's probably some persecution going on from the Jews' point of view, the other Jews that live there, because they have rejected, the Jewish people have rejected Jesus as Messiah. And Jesus says that they are not real Jews, which is interesting because they're, they're ethnic Jews. But it goes to what Paul says. And it goes throughout all of even the Old Testament and even what Jesus says is just because you're an ethnic Jew doesn't mean you are really a child of Abraham. A child of Abraham is somebody that has faith like Abraham. Romans, um, Romans chapter 2, Paul says that a true Jewish person isn't somebody that is has experienced a outward circumcision, but it has they've been a circumcised of the heart. That's the true Jew. And that's why Jesus says here and also in the Smyrna that they they they, they are ethnic Jews, but really they're following who? Satan, because they've rejected Jesus as the Messiah. Same thing we've been looking at in the Gospel of John. If you don't, if you don't have Jesus, then you've rejected God the Father. And that's what Jesus says there in John as well. So I will make them come and fall down at your feet. Again, this goes back to a an Old Testament understanding. It goes back to military understanding when, when uh, you have people that have conquered in battle, what they would do is, the, especially the other kings, 
they would they would get them the uh, they would have the other kings come and they would bow down at your feet and when you bow down at someone's feet what are you saying you're surrendering you're that's like a white flag you're you're waving and and you're saying you're in charge of me and that's the other and that's what worship is you realize that when we worship god it's just not singing some songs well, true worship of God is when we bow down before Him in surrender and saying, you're in charge, God. The songs we sing are an overflow of praising to God and saying, God, this is how great and how awesome You are. But true worship is when we bow down and surrender our lives to God. Which is why that term, uh, again, depending on your English translations, I will make your, your enemies come and they will fall down or bow down at your feet in the act of surrender. Isaiah chapter 40 verse uh, chapter 60 verse 14 talks about this how 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 God the Jewish nation how God's going to come and he's going to bring all the gentiles all the nations to bow down at the the feet of the the nation of Israel. And again this is this understanding when will when will the enemies of believers when will this happen? When Jesus comes back. We saw that uh, in the previous uh, um, the letter to the church in Thyatira. The believers are going to actually be participating in this judgment of the nations. And at that time, the ones who are persecuting you, Jesus, that's what he's saying in the Philadelphia here, the ones who are persecuting you are actually going to fall down at your feet and they're actually going to admit you are right. Because not only will they come and they fall down at, at your, your feet, they, if you go on, and they may know or they will acknowledge that I have loved you. So these Jewish people who reject Jesus, who persecute the Christian because they think they've twisted the Jewish religion, Jesus says one day they're going to realize that you are right. Another promise, uh, number 10, verse 10. Since you have kept my word, in other words, this is kind of uh, because, of their, because of their obedience to God's word, Jesus tells them what is he going to do to them. To keep them safe, to keep them from the hour of, again, depending on your English translation, your trial or testing that is going to come on, on whom? The whole world. And so a promise, the second promise Jesus gives them is that He's going to keep them from the testing that will come upon the whole world. Well, of course, the question becomes, what in the world is Jesus referring to here? This is one of those verses that, again, depending on how you take these these uh, churches, and we'll talk about that in a few weeks of, of so forth, uh, people will point to and be like, "Oh, here it is. This is this means that Jesus is going to keep believers from experiencing all the tribulation side of things." But that's not what Jesus is saying here. He's not saying he's going to take them out, but that he will keep them safe. Same wording that that Jesus says, and we'll see this in a couple weeks in John chapter 17. Jesus says, as he prays for his as he prays for his disciples, he says. You know, I'm I'm sending you into the world, but I do not want, but you are not to be of this world, and that's this kind of understanding of when you look at the phraseology of some of this, is that since you've kept my word, 
I will also keep you safe during the hour of trial or testing that is going to come on the whole world. And again, when you look at the whole world word, especially when you look at how that word, that phrase is used in the book of Revelation, that talks about unbelievers. So when you get into, and like I said, we'll get into Revelation 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, and we get into the signs and the, and, and the um, the signs and the uh, um, trumpets and the, the bulls and so forth. And there's always the big debate. Will believers experience those things? And one of the things that we saw when we went through the, the plagues of Exodus is did the nation of Israel experience the plagues? That's a loaded question because I see some of you thinking, it's a, the reason why it's a little question because you, 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 some of you are thinking, well, they experienced some of them, first couple of them, but after that, there's that distinction. When we get into the signs and the trumpets and the bulls, you will see that the believers are sealed on the forehead with God, and and some of the some of the plagues specifically say they are only only the ones who have taken the mark of the beast experience them, not the ones that God has sealed on with his sign. And that's and that's what this understanding is. Is that Jesus promises the ones because you have been faithful to me, I will keep you safe when those times of the testing of the whole world referring to unbelievers will come. And so, yeah, those are some of the things we get to look forward to as we talk about those. And again, the symbolism and, and so forth is there's a lot of foreshadowing in these letters that point to what the rest of the book of Revelation talks about. So, a quick overview. Here you go. So after you get to the letters, you turn to Revelation chapter 4, you get the throne room of God. Revelation chapter 5, there's that question of the scroll, and we're not going to go through all the details because that's what the, the weeks ahead are going to experience. So uh, the scroll and the question, who's, who's worthy of opening, opening this scroll, of course, is the Lamb of God, who is ultimately Jesus. Then you get into the seals in chapter 6. And, and the seals, as the Lamb is opening the, the seven seals of, of this scroll, and we'll see that they, I'll show you a picture of what a scroll with seven seals looks like, and that was a real thing. As he's opening these seven seals, the things are happening. Chapter 7, uh, we get the 144,000 sealed. When you look at, and this was, again, this was one of the reasons why I wanted to go through the beginning parts of Exodus, because there's a lot of symbolism and a lot of parallel between what happened with Exodus and what happens in Revelation. And when you, and typically, when you look at the 144,000 and you look at the tribes of, of Israel, Typically, we think, whoa, those are the Jewish people. But when you look at the tribes that are listed, and we'll go into more detail why this is. This is just, I guess, a little foreshadowing where we're heading. When you look at the actual tribes, you realize these are not Jewish people. 
This is not literally 12,000 from the tribe of Judah. This is symbolic because the tribes, there's no other way the tribes are listed here in Revelation anywhere else in the Bible. And there's a reason behind that. Those are believers. 144,000, symbolic, not real. So God comes and seals the believers. Then you have the great multitude. And then you have uh, some more things. And then you get to chapter 8. And you have the trumpets. And all of a sudden, now there's this distinction between those who have, who have been sealed by God and those who have not been sealed by God. Just like in the Exodus. The land of Goshen, some of the plagues did not affect the land of Goshen. But it affected the Egyptians. And so the trumpets and the bulls of God's wrath, and it says in there, if you want to read, read further in there, you can see that again, it says in there that this affected this group of people, but did not affect those who have been sealed by God. And so, so that's, uh, again, that's a little, we'll get into all these details here in the weeks ahead. Uh, like I said, um, when we started this, it's in some ways, we have been taught to think like this, the typical way in America, we think like this of, of, uh, um, of the end times. The book of Revelation, like when you actually read through it and you actually look at what the symbolism means, it challenges that way of thought. And you realize, uh, and I realize, and the more I study Revelation, the more I realize, I think our, our models of what that end time is going to look like, I think they're just, a, they may be a tad wrong. Because it's not as neat and tidy as we think. So all I have to say, going back to this letter in Philadelphia, one of the promises is that the believers, that God will keep them uh, from, from that. And if you think, you know, God did. God did keep this promise because he's writing this in around, you know, 70 A.D. where 2,000 years later has, has that trial come, testing come of the, of the world? No. So he kept his promise that he was going to keep the people there of Philadelphia from going to them. And then verse 11, the last promise is, I am coming soon. Hold on to what you have. In order that or so that no one will take your crown. Again, that crown of life, that crown uh, that you that the that the people get uh, when they when they win that race. Uh, the, again, that that faithfulness. That's the message that God is telling the people here in Philadelphia. You may be small in number, but you are faithful. So keep on being faithful regardless of what happens. The overcomer, again, uh, we usually do six and seven, the exhortation overcoming, but we flip-flop again uh, here. And the overcomer passage, uh, we see all these things. That the one who overcomes, the one verse, um, uh, to do verse 12, the one who overcomes, the one who perseveres, the one who is victorious, and the one who is faithful to the end, God says, I will make them a pillar in the temple of my God and never again will they uh, leave it or never again will they be outside. Again, in Philadelphia, because of the earthquakes, there was a time that they could not live in their city, that they had to be outside the city. And all of a sudden, God is saying, 
if, if you are victorious, if you continue to remain faithful to me, I am going to make you a pillar. You remember these pillars up here? The sign of stability. I'm going to make you stable. In the midst of this changing environment, in the midst of the earthquakes, you are going to be able to stand the test. I am going to make you a, a pillar in the temple of my God and you will never be outside or you'll never miss uh, living in, in the temple of God ever again. What else does he say there? I will write on them God's name. I will also write on them the name of my God. The name of the city of my God, which is, what's the name of the city? The New Jerusalem which is coming down out of the heavens, which is, this is the first time, one of the first times we hear about the New Jerusalem. You have to get away all the way to Revelation chapter 21 to actually see the New Jerusalem and what that all entails. And I will also write on them my, referring to Jesus' new name. And so that whole symbolism of a person who is victorious, the promise that God makes to them is that they will have eternal life in the new heavens and the new earth. And we've seen this all throughout these promises at the end of the person who overcomes, the person who's victorious. The hope that they have is that they will experience this eternal life in the new heavens and the new earth. It may be worded a little bit differently, but that's always the hope. And that's always the promise that God gives them. If you make it to the end as my followers, you will get to experience this hope. You will get to experience dwelling with me in this new heavens and the new earth, in this new Jerusalem. That's secure. And no matter what you're going through, that's the hope you can look forward to. And of course, the final one, the exhortation, whoever has ears, listen to what the Spirit says to the churches. Again, when you look at this letter or this message to the city of Philadelphia there's some takeaways that we can we can take away especially in our world as in America is number one the size of the church doesn't matter to God not one does he say he says yeah you're small but everywhere else he's praising this church and why is he praising this church because they're staying true but God doesn't care about their numbers what God, what God really cares about is that are they walking in obedience to Him? In America, and when we're part of any denomination, the very first question, when, you, when I go to pastors' conferences, the very first, does anybody want to guess what the first question the other pastors will ask each other? How big is your church? Is your church? Mm -hmm. What's your average Sunday attendance? When, when the denomination... Uh, Christmas Tree Alliance denomination, when they, uh, when we have to do, and Amy's in the middle of doing the annual reports uh, to the denomination, what do you think the questions they ask? What's your average attendance? What's your average, what's your, what's your offering for this year? Uh, what's your total offering? What's your average Sunday morning attendance? What's your average Wednesday night attendance? What's your average Sunday school attendance? Have you had any baptism this year? And then at the end, when you plug in all that information, they didn't give you a nice little handy chart so you can see, are you, are you going up or are you going down? But according to God, what does He care about? Obedience. But in America, we somehow have equaled this, a large church attendance 
equals God's blessing. I've been to some large churches before. And I've I've been to churches where I mean they they have two, three thousand people attending on a Sunday morning between five churches. I'm sorry, five services or whatever. I'm sorry. They there's no they may think there's life in them, but when you actually listen and you actually part of the service, you kind of scratch your head sometimes thinking, well, are they really worshiping the right Jesus? Or are they worshiping the American version of Jesus? The health and wealth American dream Jesus. Again, God doesn't care about the size of the church. It's not about the numbers. It's about is the church being faithful are we as individuals walking in obedience to jesus in our daily lives that's what it comes down to because nowhere in here in the church of philadelphia does god say say hey you're small in in strength but you know you you're you're walking in obedience to me i i wish you would like try some some uh uh new ways to attractional things to get people's uh to the to amp up your little strength to become more strength it's not what jesus says yes you're a little in strength but you have been faithful to the gospel of jesus christ and because you have been faithful to the gospel of jesus christ I am going to do some things for you. I'm going to protect you. I'm going to keep you. And I'm going to give you that hope that one day you will be secure and understand that you will experience the new heavens and the new earth and be in my presence for all of eternity. That's what matters. That faithfulness to God.